Hi, everyone. Welcome to Open Mind Night, a show that talks about everything mental health and mental illness related. I am your host, Robin Tamanaha, licensed marriage and family therapist. Joining me on this episode is my guest, Dr. Neeru Bakshi. She is a board certified psychiatrist with a passion for mental health equity. She has worked in a variety of care settings and has served in leadership positions throughout her career. Most recently, she was the West Region Medical Director for Eating Recovery Center and Pathlight Behavioral Health Center. Being a South Asian woman, she has worked tirelessly to champion culturally informed treatment for South Asians. Hello. Hi, Robin. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for doing this. I'm super, super excited. Um, So I have a lot of questions. And um, so we will go through a few. Um, I know, you know, like it says in your bio, you know, really emphasis on, um, you know, South Asians, which I think is Mm -hmm. wonderful. Could you tell me a little bit about like, mental health and South Asians or like mental health and, and South Asians in America? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think first to start off, we have to think about what all encompasses the South Asian diaspora because it's huge. You know, I mean, I think oftentimes in America, people think about India because it's the largest country, it's got the largest population. And I think they think about like Hinduism because that's the largest religion within India. But, you know, we have to think about the variety that exists within the South Asian diaspora in terms of countries of origin, religious backgrounds, you know, to some degree, caste differentiations still exist within India. Um, And we have to think about what that person's individual journey has been. And I think that this is typical of what we have to think about for any person. But when we're thinking about the South Asian diaspora, there's just so much diversity that exists there. Then we talk about the immigrant journey to America and how long somebody has been in this country. And if we if we think about it, South Asians have been in America going back to the 1800s with the gold rush and first having Punjabi immigrants coming to the West Coast. But, you know, over the last definitely century, there's been an influx of South Asian immigrants to America. And I think what we see sometimes is at the point that somebody immigrated to America, their concept of what it means to be South Asian is sort of stuck in that time period in their country of origin. You know, so for example, my parents immigrated to America from India in 1970. And so a lot of their values and their beliefs are sort of stuck in 1970s India. And of course, India as America has modernized over time, but a lot of the cultural beliefs or the ways that we think about things can sometimes be stuck at the point of immigration. So when I think about my parents and their generation and their group that came from India at that time, there was a lot of focus and emphasis on the collective, on sort of keeping any issues that might bring shame or questions within the family and not really looking outside to seek for help because a lot of Indians in America, I don't wanna say everybody, but a lot of Indians in America also want to make sure that they don't create waves, that they don't attract negative attention from the larger group. And so putting out an idea that you need help might attract negative attention, might attract this idea that, well, you don't deserve to be here if you're not 
able to just sort of make it on your own. You know, so this idea of like reaching out for help for mental health illness is not something that we typically do. And I think <clears throat> as we're moving along and as we're creating change and, you know, people like myself and a variety of other you know, therapists of South Asian descent are coming out and saying, hey, we've got to break this trend. This doesn't work. Because what we see is this passing down of intergenerational trauma and then developing maladaptive coping skills that don't really work. So we see high incidences of abuse. We see high incidences of substance use as we try to bury the emotional issues that exist within our community. Yeah. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is um, there's, there's so many layers to it, you know, mm -hmm. and so maybe appearing, you know, a certain way, or you said not wanting to bring shame. Is it like currently how, how is mental health care uh, like viewed um, in India? And then like, what does that look like now? I know you said in the seventies, right? It was like the particular, you know, and then, and then how that transformed over here. What's it like currently? You know, I, I would say in India, things have changed and have modernized. And so <clears throat> in popular media, you'll see things like, you know, a, an actress going out and getting help or a movie about going and seeking out therapy. <clears throat> but these are more so seen as one-offs or sort of like concepts. But I think when you get down to sort of what's actually happening in modern day India, there's not really that much that's available in terms of mental health care. It's definitely increasing. It's definitely you know, the awareness is increasing and there are, you know, science and, and studies that are coming out of India in terms of like approaches to mental health care. Um, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not fully acceptable there. Similarly to America, it's not really, you know, it's something that we're talking about more. It's something that we're saying we need to improve, but it's not fully here. And I think, you know, when we think about immigrants and you know first generation second generation south asians in america there are some people who are willing to sort of say yes i'm going to break these taboos and i'm going to move it forward but you know i would say on a fairly regular basis i will see patients of south asian descent who are saying oh well we tried to fix it within the family or we you know didn't want to bring shame to the point where somebody gets really severely ill before they seek out treatment I think then there's also the flip side of it, of thinking about mental health care similarly to a physical health condition of a like, okay, well, you have appendicitis, cut it out, problem solved, move on. Okay, so you have depression, go to a therapist, take some medication for a while, problem solved, moved on. And it's not really like that. I think we know that it, depression really isn't like that. And so I think that there are opportunities to increase awareness and increase education within the South Asian community about what it actually means to have depression or bipolar disorder or what have you. Mm -hmm. And then how that could also impact like future, you know, mm -hmm. generations, you know? Yeah. 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 For, sure. For sure. And I think that's part of that intergenerational piece that I was bringing up. And, you know, there's this um, content creator uh, that goes by Brown Mama Trauma on Instagram. And she is amazing. She came up with this graphic of the intergenerational trauma that can exist and sort of like how it impacts generation upon generation. 
you know, and this goes back to her, her graphic goes back to the time of partition. So that's when the British left the subcontinent and created India, Pakistan, and, and Bangladesh and said, okay, if you are Hindu, you can't live in Pakistan. If you are Muslim, you can't live in India. So it causes mass migration and violence and people being uprooted from generational homes because this was the decree. And based off of that trauma, we then see the next generation dealing with substance use and abuse. And then we see the next generation dealing with trauma, anxiety, depression, trying to be perfect because they don't want to create waves, right? So we know that this passes on generation to generation. And it's really sort of, okay, how do we recognize all of those different connections and then say, okay, I'm going to work my way through this. Because when we, we try to avoid negative feelings, that's just the human condition. We don't want to deal with things that create distress for us. However, when we're trying to create this like detour path around the issue, we're never going to actually make it to our goal. We're just going to have to keep going and detouring and detouring and detouring. But the idea is you have to actually like identify it and then address it in some sort of a way. You know, and, and I think then too, and on top of that, the people who have been immigrated to another country, there's trauma associated with that as well. You know, there's, you, you uproot your entire life, you come to America where you know nobody, you may or may not have familiarity with the language and the culture, you have very little resources, and then you're expected within the American society to be this model minority and sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just make it work while at the same time facing racism and, you know, facing all of these things. And, you know, so it's just this, how do you, how do you pull all of that together and then just sort of say, okay, I'm fine. No, you're not fine. <laughs> There's so much there. There's so much and so much deeper, right? Yeah. Like, there's that, okay, well, there's this happening to me. I'll just kind of, you know, push it aside, maybe not, you know, talk about it or address it, but it goes so far back. Totally. That intergenerational trauma goes so far back, even like symptom wise. I've, you know, saw research on that, like, and just mm -hmm. how certain it's interesting how things manifest, even though that particular person didn't experience a trauma directly, but it was like their past generations. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and then I think about, and this boggles my mind to say it, 9-11 was a generation ago. And there are so many of my peers and my friends who just by the fact of having brown color in their skin faced racism at the time of 9-11. And we continue as a community to face that racism. I mean, just this summer, there was a Sikh man who was attacked in New York. He had come to America to visit family. He was going to the Gurdwara. And he got attacked because he was wearing a turban. You know, 10 years ago was the shooting at a Sikh temple at a Gurdwara in Wisconsin. And the anniversary just happened. You know, recently in Albuquerque, there's been shootings of Muslim men. Um, and, you know, I think that they just caught a suspect yesterday. So there's, you know, continuously, there's this trauma that exists. And again, we're supposed to just sort of say, okay, we're fine. We're not going to reach out to anybody for help. You just sort of, that's the, the thought within the community is, no, we'll deal with it within the community. And there's definitely power there. There's, there's healing within the community that can exist. There's scientific studies that show a connection to spirituality and religion helps to create healing. And 
sometimes we need more than that. Sometimes we have to be able to say within our community and to ourselves, to our families, it's okay to reach out for more. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're a problem. It doesn't mean that, that your marriageability status decreases, because that's another concern and question is if you are seen to be ill, mentally ill, are you too unstable to get married, to have a family? You know, if the other, if the, you know, potential in-laws find out, might they reject you because of that? Because there is that stigma, there is that shame. So that further reinforces this idea, keep it within the family and don't talk about it. I hope there continues like to be growth, you know, in this. I think that I'm I'm definitely gonna check out that that influencer that you mentioned too. I think that's so cool and it, how it touches so many, you know, people. And so I think it's also helpful, you know, and just such such as you know you are here also talking about it. Like make it's okay, you know. I think some people feel like they need permission in some sense or for some it's like oh I see another person you know and they're at least talking about these things and sometimes that also helps you know go against this not talking about it and just like holding it in right right and I think like I said earlier when when it gets held in then we we continue to either pass along the trauma right because we don't know how to deal with our emotions so then how are we teaching our children to deal with their emotions Mm -hmm. And then also um, we get to this point where we are, we see people who are really, really ill, you know, so mm-hmm. we know that depression can at times, if it gets severe, lead to psychosis. So hallucinations, paranoia. So sometimes people will then bring in their loved one because they're hearing or seeing things and they won't leave the house because they think that somebody's watching them. Whereas that initially started as a depression. It didn't start with psychosis, but psychosis became the problem. You know, as you mentioned, I previously worked in eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And so I would see people who would come in once their eating disorder was at the point of saying, oh my gosh, you actually need to be like in an ICU. You can't come and see me at this level of treatment because you are this ill. So go to the hospital first and then come here, you know? And and so it's, it's how do we recognize things and address them earlier mm. so that we get to that point where it's a like there's no other option right i think seeking uh-huh. out medical care doesn't have to be your last resort and really sort of destigmatizing that saying no we can go into therapy earlier we can talk to people earlier we can be on medication mm. and again, recognizing that that's not some sort of like deficit or weakness right actually like flipping the script there a little bit and saying, asking for help is courage and strength, you know? I um, I worked a lot in like community mental health. You know, he's had very intense um, clients and um, we had these like groups that supervisions with fellow therapists. And um, there was this one therapist in the group who we were talking about shame mm-hmm. and we were talking about versus like being vulnerable and, you know, how it's also a strength, you know? Mm-hmm. And she said this thing that was like, almost like a mic drop moment um, where she's like, I don't really define it in any of those ways. When I talk about it, when I think about it, I describe it as um, emotional bravery. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's 
the wonder is Brene Brown, right? Who talks about vulnerability and shame and, and all of those things. And that, that feels like a Brene Brown kind of thing of like that emotional bravery. That's so powerful, you know, mm-hmm. and about it in that way how much change could we create yeah we think about this idea of like immigrating again going back to this idea of immigration coming to america there's such bravery in that there's such bravery in uprooting everything and going to a place that you don't really know and re-establishing yourself and if we could say okay let's take that bravery that we once exhibited and apply it to other situations and normalize it how how much more progressive could we potentially be? Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, I think it's, it's a matter of reframing and redefining, you know, because just because we carry the definitions that have been handed to us doesn't mean that we have to carry those definitions forward. Mm-hmm. And really sort of saying, yes, I can be thoughtful about my community and also be thoughtful about myself and not see that as a point of selfishness. And I think that's another concept within the South Asian culture is this sort of idea of always thinking about the community. Um, and I think that this is within the broader South, within the broader Asian culture as well. I was listening to a story on NPR and there was a gentleman talking about the Filipino concept of the community and sort of how that's brought through. And I was thinking to myself, I mean, you could insert, you know, any Asian community, any, you know, Latinx community, and it would be a similar type of idea. And so I think it's this idea of like, yes, you can think about your community, but it doesn't have to be a complete dissolution of yourself to then also think about the community, you know, and it's this idea of holding a dialectic, which is this, you know, that contrary or differing ideas can exist at the same time. They don't have to be exclusionary of each other. So how can I think about the community and think about how I support the community and the community supports me and also think about how I support myself? Right? Because if I am dissolved, if I am you know, succumbing to my own mental illness, how am I actually supporting my community in a way that's effective? How am I actually supporting my community in a way that helps when I can't even stand up on my own two feet, so to speak? Yeah, this is a good segue. I was actually, I have questions to you about, um, you know, your, I guess if you could t- speak a little bit about like your your journey. I know you've held... Um, definitely leadership type of positions, right? Um, in your career. Could you talk about like what led to that or what your experience was in those roles? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you know, this even goes back to, you know, residency training and whatnot. I always knew that I wanted to, to lead and to teach. And so I would look for opportunities in which I could create that either for myself or opportunities that already existed. And, you know, so far in my career, I've worked in a community hospital in a suburb doing outpatient and, you know, consultative care. Um, I've worked in an eating disorder treatment facility and done care, you know, at the residential level, the partial hospital level, the intensive outpatient level. And presently I'm doing telepsychiatry with Headspace Health. And throughout my career, I've always known that I wanted to leave. And I don't know quite what that is. Maybe that's that my old minority thing. I need to you know, <laughs> of away. Who knows? Maybe do some investigation there. But I think throughout my experience, it's been it's been varied. You know, I think medicine is 
can definitely be sort of the old white boys club to some extent. And, you know, I did most of my training in Texas and I definitely experienced that, you know, and I was in the Texas Medical Center in Houston, Texas, which if you're unfamiliar with it, is this, you know, blocks and blocks of hospitals that are really top-notch world-class hospitals. And I got to train there and it was amazing. But also too, it's a lot of Indians, right? There's a lot of Indians who are in medicine. So to some extent, I kind of felt like, hey, I'm okay there, you know, because I saw people who looked like me and I saw them achieving their goals. And so it was like this, yes, we can do this. I then moved to Seattle, Washington and completed my last year of residency at the University of Washington, which was fantastic. It was a great opportunity. And I'm so lucky that I was able to transfer mid-course and then have been in the Seattle, Washington area ever since. And, you know, in my my community hospital that I was at in the suburbs, I decided, okay, I'm going to run for chairperson of the psychiatry department. And I got elected by my peers. And then I go into these medical executive committee meetings. I see maybe two other women. They're white. I see one other brown man um, who's a surgeon. And everybody else is white and male. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is this is really, really interesting. And I put this out there publicly, so I'm, I'm okay talking about it. But when I in, was interviewing for the position, I met with the head of the medical staff office and my boss, who was the, the department um, head, was there. And the, this white woman said to me, well, you know, these medical executive committee meetings are really important. And so you can't miss any single one of them, not even if you want to make breakfast in bed for your husband on his birthday. And I just stopped and I said, wait a minute, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And it took me a minute. I didn't respond to it in that in that moment. One of my colleagues who's a white male was also going up for this position. So I went up to him and I said, hey, did, did so-and-so say this to you? And he's like, what? No. I was like, okay. So I went back to her and I said, hey, didn't appreciate that. That was not okay. And oh, I'm so sorry that you took it in that way, was her response. I was like, no, I, I didn't take it in that way. That's how you put it out there. And I was elected the committee chairperson by my peers because they saw in me that that was something that I wanted and that they trusted that I could lead them. You know, And I made every single meeting, even pregnant. I went to every single meeting at... 7 a.m., right? Because that's when it was scheduled to be. And I think what's baked into that is a lot of different things, right? One, it's this assumption that everybody can make a 7 a.m. meeting. Two, it's not really thinking about caregiver status. You know, like I was a caregiver to children. I was a caregiver to uh, older adults and sort of the complexity of what that family structure is, not even thought about. And then three, sort of how do we make this accessible for all people? Really what it was is, Hey, the surgeons are going into the OR at this time, so we have to do the meeting before they go into the OR. But there's so many other people who are within these departments who don't have to go into the OR. So why do we have to do this meeting at seven o'clock in the morning? You know, so it was just this variety of ways that barriers are put in place to not allow a diversity of thoughts or diversity of people. <clears throat> so me being there, you know, I, I served my two years as the chairperson, and my hope is that I created a difference. My hope is that that woman never said 
anything like that to anybody after me because on some level she realized that that was wrong you know and and so I have to trust that I have to speak up and I think that that's <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse right because to some extent I fit the model minority I'm a you know woman who's successful in medicine and I try not to create waves I try to follow the rules but then on the other hand I you know I could have just sat and said oh okay sure sure and not said anything back to her but I knew that that would have eaten away at me. And so I disrupted that situation and hopefully for the greater good. And I think that that's how I try to approach any situation in which I'm a leader in healthcare is how can I create disruption for the greater good? In my last role as the West Region Medical Director, I oversaw physicians in multiple states. I helped to develop programs and I helped to sort of create this really top-notch treatment facility, um, you know, maybe to toot my own horn there, but I also wanted to create disruption in a way that was positive. So when I was looking at hiring physicians, I didn't just look at what you had on paper because, you know, there is a white male that I um, interviewed who on paper, glorious resume, could have been fantastic. When I met him in person, no, absolutely not. Like he just, he had no connectivity to people. He he couldn't really, you know, answer questions. And it just, it wasn't working. And But I got pressure to hire this person because on paper, he looked so great. But what I really wanted to look at is how do you connect with people? And how can I hire people who have a diversity of background? So when I left that position, 60% of the physicians were people of color because I knew we've got this diverse community and it really does matter for the patients to see people who represent them or who can connect to them on some kind of a level. And I'm not saying that you have to be a person of color to connect with another person of color, but if you, you know, for example, as a white practitioner are coming in and not willing or open to learn about diversity, you're not actually ever gonna connect with your patients and therefore, you're not really going to be helpful, you know? So it's, it's incredibly important that we look at that. And you know, John Oliver about a week and a half ago did his, his show on mental health care in America and interviewed a black woman who said, you know, that she tried to work with a black therapist or a white therapist, but just felt like that person couldn't understand her. And so she couldn't bring her whole self. The patient couldn't bring her whole self to the sessions. And then they interviewed a black man who said, I was looking for a black male therapist. I couldn't find one to save my life. You know, because for him, it was incredibly important to have somebody who had some sort of understanding of his experience, you know, or at least was willing and open to understand the experience. And so I think that that is so incredibly important because when we talk about equity in mental health care, it really is either how do you show curiosity from the, from the jump and say, okay, yes, I am willing and able to learn about who you are, not expecting you to be my cultural guide, but me understanding what it means for you to be in your experience, or on some level have some connectivity. That's so incredibly important. And I think that's what's going to help to bring down the barriers for South Asians, especially, is seeing who are the people that I can connect with. When I was in eating disorder care, I used to get 
people cold calling me because they would see my name on their insurance list and they'd be like, hey, I'm Indian. I saw that you're Indian. Are you taking new patients? And I wasn't at the time because I was within that treatment facility. But I would get those like two or three times a week. I'd get voicemails asking me if I was taking patients because they're looking for that connectivity. Yeah, I know. I know you said, you know, I hope made an impact. And I feel like you definitely did. I mean, <laughs> one, having a seat at the table. I think I always think that's important, you know, where the decisions are made, the impact. I think that is like the, the first one. And then it's like, what do they do with it? And you definitely did create change. I think that is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Thank you. Yeah, there's, it, it, it's funny because my, my mom, I'm the youngest of three kids. My mom and uh, one of her former coworkers said I was the most American out of the three. And what that meant was I was the most willing to push back on norms and the most willing to ask questions to try to create a greater level of understanding for myself. So in her context, that made me American. And what I'm trying to say is I'm Indian and American. I'm Indian in that I uphold my cultural values and I'm trying to pass that on to my kids. And as much as I can, I'm trying to lean into not letting our culture die with the time that's passing. But I'm also American because this is a place I was born and raised, you know, so there's going to be parts of American culture, parts of individualism that are incorporated in me. And I think that that's also something that we have to think about with the first and the second generation South Asians who are here in America, who are born and brought up here, is how are these cultures melding with each other? And how do we say that that's okay? Right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like you've also done that professionally, kind of redefine, you know, like you mentioned, um, yes, I, I did these things, you're, you know, you achieved what you wanted to achieve. You had your goals with your career. You did all that. At the same time, there is a line where at some point you're like, okay, if there's something to be said, I'm going to say it, you know? So blending, blending the, you know, two and kind of redefining what, it, what even that looks like. Yeah. 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 Well, we have a few more minutes. Um, is there anything I didn't bring up that you wanted to mention or you want the listeners to know about? <laughs> I think, you know, there are definitely, as we were talking about, things that are changing within sort of access to care and um, cultural organizations that support care. And so I think that that's also a way for folks to maybe like even just enter into the idea of seeking out help and treatment is to look for cultural organizations within your area. So here in Seattle, um, there is, you know, an Asian mental health clinic that exists um, that people can access. There is a you know South Asian and Asian domestic violence organization that exists. Um, and you know within most major cities, there are things like this that exist. And so if you need resources, you can look for them, you know, and they will be accessible to you. Um, I recently attended a virtual, sort of like talent showcase in support of like a senior health organization on the East Coast, like in the tri-state area. And that's something that hasn't previously existed. You know, it's sort of a like what happens to our elders as they are aging in America and how do they create community 
you know, and so there are these things that exist out there and there are more and more that are coming. And so it really is, if you want that help, if you want to look for it, it's out there. Yeah. 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 And I wonder too, with, um, you know, the way the pandemic went, I feel like it even opened things up more as far as online and website and virtually. So I would hope to um, the accessibility, not just like finding it, but like getting, you know, connected with it is hopefully a little more streamlined or easier since things are more virtual. And that's something that I love about my current position. You know, previously I was licensed in three states just to kind of cover virtually and whatnot. Now I'm I'm, I'm licensed in a dozen states across the country. And I see people from all over the country every single day. And to me, that's just so amazing, right? Because we're increasing access, we're increasing that potential for people to get help. And, you know, another thing on the John Oliver piece, just to bring that up one more time, was he was talking about how there are these, you know, deserts, basically, in, re- in rural areas in terms of people who practice mental health care. And so this teleworld can hopefully help to bridge those deserts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. If um, this was super helpful and informative, um, if the listeners want to find out more about you, um, is there anywhere they could go? Yeah. Um, so I have a professional Instagram at Niru Bakshi MD. And then I'm also available on LinkedIn to be followed. And I post up content just about these topics um, and also what it means to be a woman of color in leadership. Um, and so, yeah, definitely folks can look for me and my content there. And then hopefully I'll be doing some speaking engagements. I'll definitely be posting about those as well. Great. I will put those handles and then your LinkedIn um, as well, the link to that. I'll put it in the show notes um, so that the listeners can easily access it. So thank you so much for doing this. I was so excited. Me too. too. Me too. Thank you so much for, for finding me out and making sure that we connected. I really enjoyed myself today. Great. Thank you.